king of the Bible, this idea of shame and honor. They were honored. They weren't saying that they're not ashamed, that they had honor about themselves. And I think that a lot of times we think about it very, very negatively about a thing. Commentaries have been baffled at this verse. For when they mention covered, just for a lot of different things. But all I want you to see is that in the beginning of the pages of Scripture, the very beginning, God talks about shame. That in the garden, there was no shame. And then what do we see in chapter 3? Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So right there, what Satan is doing, you could say, he is challenging God's honor. Satan is saying, God is not trustworthy. Now, that may not be a big deal to you. You know, we looked, talked about a little bit on, on Wednesday night in our general culture. But if someone is an authority figure, um, in our culture, it is very accepted and almost encouraged to attack the person in trust. Whether that is a, a boss, whether that is a pastor, whether that's the thing. The person in, in, in leadership, they're going to address. But I just want you to see, that is not normal in the majority world. So in the majority world, if the leader was being uh, um, dishonored, being questioned, whether it's, it's a tribe in Africa or down the Amazon, or whether it's a, a father in, in Eastern culture, you just didn't do that. Right? That's why the, the familial idea was very important. Well, I go on, it says, Verse 2, and the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not, you will certainly, you will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make them wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of, of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Their eyes were opened, and the very first thing we see is we see shame. They were shameful of what they did. But remember, when we think about this idea of guilt and shame, we'll look at it here in a second. Shame and guilt are a little bit different. Guilt is basically what we do. Shame is who I am. So when we talk about that Jesus Christ came to take our guilt on the cross, is that true? Amen. He took, he paid for what we did. But Jesus did more than pay for our, our guilt. say something along the lines of they've done something and they had to live with it the rest of their life. They had to live with the feeling of that, that, that shame that comes when you do things that we don't uh, like. Whether it's um, big sins uh, or, or small, this idea that we have to live with it. So if, if you see that idea right at the opening page of the Bible, remember this is a, a, a Middle Eastern culture. 
as an intellect, very family-oriented, so think communal. This idea of the leader being uh, rejected, and what you see is this idea of this uh, space, that the, God's face turns away from them. They, they hide, fellowship is broken, and there's shame there. Um, there's only been a couple times in my life when I have really felt shame. Uh, I remember one time, I was 12 years old, and uh, something happened, I won't go into details, but something happened, and someone I admired, and the look I got back, I just felt like I was rejected. That I was a worthless person. Right? And I'm 36 now, and that, that feeling I had when I was 12, I still feel. That's shame. Right? That's shame. So we're just going to talk a little bit more about what, what is this difference between uh, shame and guilt. So pre-fall, before the fall, um, there was no shame. So that at the center of our, of our being, uh, Adam and Eve, who I am, we're made in God's image, we're naked, we're unashamed, there's no sin, therefore no guilt and no shame. We are innocent. Now, if you remember a couple years ago when I was preaching through uh, Luke's gospel, Luke 23, 22 and 23, I kept on seeing the same repeat. Jesus was innocent. He was innocent. He was innocent. Jesus Christ was the the, the the way man should have been before the fall, innocent. There was unbroken fellowship with the Lord. A man and a woman, Adam and Eve, had the honor of walking with God. I mean, just think about it. They, they were walking with God. They had perfect fellowship. Well, fallen humanity comes. Depravity, sin permeates both the external world that we see, right? We see all the both the physical earthquakes, tsunamis, all that. We also see the, the murder, the, the violence between, we see fracturing in families. So we see guilt, the external behavior, but we also see the internal workings of, of, of guilt, which is shame. Um, so as the guilt for our behavior, because it violates God's law, the internal being we have shame for who I am. We fall short of God's glory. We're dishonoring God's person. Uh, and we, we even feel more shame because the result of being a victim of the sin of others, creating these layers upon layers of shame. So sometimes when we think about the depravity of sin, we only think uh, big picture, big sin. But listen, sin is pervasive. Sin affects everything in our, our lives, even our inner being. And God in his kindness wants you to descend to the Lord Christ. Jesus Christ lived the life that we were called to live, perfectly uh, obeyed God the Father, and he saved us. So the Western-oriented gospel usually addresses sin and guilt. God forgives you of our sin, forgives us of our guilt. But we don't often address that God takes away our shame. Um, in the book I'm reading, The Global Gospel, he says that in all my years of listening to sermons, I had only heard one sermon on shame. And then I would ask you the same question. You don't have to raise your hand, but how often in all your church experiences have you heard someone get up and talk about shame, the inner, inner feelings of the heart, rather than just your positional righteousness and simply that you're good? So positional salvation, our guilt is forgiven. That's the legal term, right? So 
Wesley like to think of that legality, so we often talk about justification. Now, justification is a legal term, means that you are uh, no longer paid a penalty, right? You are forgiven, right? So there, there's a charge against you, you are guilty of sin, Jesus Christ came, gave you his righteousness, therefore you're justified and declared not guilty. That's the way we typically explain the gospel, and that is all uh, 100% true. Uh, but it doesn't really talk about the, the, the deficit of honor that we have in our lives. It doesn't talk about the, um, the amount of shame. And oftentimes when we speak that way, we, we see little transformation in being conformed to the image of Christ and kind of in thinking and becoming a whole person. So salvation from guilt and shame, which is this idea of this global gospel, is positional and experiential salvation. A guilt forgiven and shame covered for greater wholeness. I think the reason why this book is, is resonating with me, this idea of this global gospel, how the, the honor and shame dynamics, is that it's expanding my view of how awesome and beautiful and powerful the gospel. It really does change everything. Honor surplus from knowing Christ by faith. So Christ, when he died, didn't just take our sin upon the cross, but he took our shame and he gave us a place of honor. So when Christ died, he said of you and I that I am not ashamed to be called your brother. That's what it says in, in Hebrews chapter 2. I am not ashamed to be called your brother. This is the great picture that we see in Revelation chapter 20, chapter 21 when Jerusalem is coming out of the heavens right from God and it says that uh, there's this announcement and the one who's seated in the throne so the dwelling place of, of, of God is with man. I will be their God and they will be my people. This, this restoring, right? This is even where I was thinking about this morning when I was thinking about this idea that when we meet Christ we will be told his face. Now, when you told someone's face, there's intimacy there. This, this idea that when we're, when we're turning away, God is ashamed of us. He doesn't want to look at us. But when, when honor is restored, there's a, there's a welcome. Picture the prodigal son uh, in your mind. God delights over us. God delights over us. God doesn't want to punish us. I had a conversation recently. Someone who's walked with Christ, things that happen in life, I think God is punishing me. Now, we know that sometimes God purifies and disciplines us. But listen, what, what you needed to hear was God delights in you. Zephaniah 3.17, God sings over you with loud singing. You are his treasured possession. Why? It's because his son gave you his honor. His son, the Lord Christ, gave you his when that happens, something more than just I'm forgiven of the things that I did wrong, I am internally transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we see this idea of the global gospel, that Jesus Christ in the cross came not only to take our guilt, not only to pay for our sin on the cross, but he came to take our shame. I just want to show you one story today of how this happens in Matthew chapter 12. So go back to Matthew chapter 12, if you will. Um, this idea is kind of woven throughout the, 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 the Gospels, especially. 
Jesus went on from there and entered the synagogue. Okay, so the synagogue was the main place uh, where, where Jewish worship happened. Now, in that culture, if you were at a synagogue, who was the person who was your leader? Okay, it was the rabbi or it was the teacher. Okay, the rabbi or the teacher was the person that was your leader. Now, in, in that culture, would you have challenged the, the rabbi or the teacher? No. Now, some of you, maybe those of you that come from a few generations ago, it would have been unheard of for, for some maybe in your family to question your father. No one did that. You know, back you know, 50 years ago, when there was an event, a party, usually what happened, all the adults ate food first. And then when they were done, the kids ate. Now in our current context, what do we do? <laughs> At a conversation, feed the kids, let them be quiet, so the adults can have a conversation. That's just the culture that we live in. But that is not the culture of the, of the majority world. The majority world holds, holds adults in a lot higher respect. And the thought of questioning the leader is unheard of. This is why when our brothers and sisters in Iran Saudi Arabia reject Islam and come to Christ, why it is absolutely amazing. Because when they say yes to Christ, they they say no to their family. They are rejected by their family. Their family may even kill them for bringing dishonor to the family name, for, for rejecting um, Allah. So that, that, that's how strong and powerful the gospel is. And those, those wounds, when you, when, you, when you get those wounds from a family that dishonor, it is very strong. So just understand the social context. It's hard to understand in our social context because we're so used to disrespect. We're so used to an anti-authoritarian uh, stream. And, and to be honest with you, you know where that comes from? Uh, that comes from uh, the Enlightenment of the 16th and 17th century. It was probably propagated by most, most primarily by Voltaire, the, the French philosopher. Voltaire, in his, is his work, Candide, his satire, making fun of the Pope and the leaders of, uh, of France, is the way most Americans think today without even knowing. That we have been conformed to the way of the Western mind and atheists like Voltaire and how we, we handle our, our leaders. Um, so understand that this context is very different. This is the synagogue. And the synagogue was a place where the leaders taught and everyone listened. Now, we look at it in verse 10. And a man was there with a withered hand. Now, why does that get them attention? Well, if you were a, a man with a withered hand, you were unclean. You should not be in a synagogue. You are deformed. You are, um, you don't have Now, reading the text, we could probably think that this man was deformed for a while, that he had this withered hand, maybe since birth, maybe an accident, we don't know. But the reading is that he probably had it for a while. Now, imagine how that deformity changed his life. How often he went from place to place and people just stared at him. Why are you here? You don't belong. You know, believe it or not, 
that's Moses' shame. It's been shame in how he, 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 he was created that way. He was shut out from these, these, these events of worship. He was shut out from the community because of this one thing. And sadly, if I just to be honest, I mean, I think this often is, is the shame that we're still bearing fruit of our, our own culture's racism of the 19, uh, you know, 1700s all the way to 1950. You don't belong here. You can't eat here. So this is this idea of when you treat people with shame, they, they want to do what? They want to show you their honor. But believe it or not, the two, one of the greatest acts of the greatest atrocities in the history of the world is the Holocaust in Germany during the Second World War. Why did that happen? Well, you can say, you can make the argument that that happened because of the dishonor that the German people were treated based on the Treaty of Versailles. The Treaty of Versailles treated the German people so badly that it took away their honor and shamed them. So when Hitler came on the scene and said, I will restore honor to Germany, everyone just followed in line because they felt shame. They were willing to blame someone they blamed the Jews. So I think oftentimes we think about all these things about race and our, and our culture, and we want to say that was years ago. But listen, man, shame runs deep. And that shame that is internal in a people, right, they're going to try to overcome that shame by, by, by fighting for honor. They may not do it the right way. They just want, want you to think through how we do this. But this man had dishonor. He was ashamed. He did not have a lot of value. So Jesus was there with this man with a withered hand. You can imagine the rabbi, the great rabbi teaching Jesus with this man with a withered hand. And they, they being the, the Pharisees, the, the leaders of the, the day, question and challenge Jesus. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now for context, remember the, the previous passage where, where Jesus his disciples plucked grain from the field to eat. And it was in that, in that idea that you can't do anything on the Sabbath. But here, uh, they're, they're questioning, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And, and they want the obvious answer, no, it is not lawful to, to heal on the Sabbath. Therefore, it's not lawful for your disciples to pick grain. Therefore, you're wrong, Jesus, in how you are discipling your people. They are challenging Jesus. Challenging his, his word. Even that last Verse of the previous section, verse 8, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He's claiming that he is the Son of Man, the promised one was to come, and they're questioning that assertion. And what is the reason, the motivation at the end of the verse, verse 10? So that they might accuse him. This is a challenge to that claim that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. They want to accuse him that he is wrong, that he has gotten things backwards. And then what we see Jesus doing, Jesus defending that claim. Look what, look what we see in verse 11. And he said to them, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? So he's saying, all of you who are questioning me, if you have a sheep, you're walking the road, walking down the road, and your sheep 
falls into a ditch and will die, knowing your sheep cost you money to, to, to provide for your family, you're going to go in and get the sheep out of the ditch. This, this, this man is a lot more valuable than his sheep. But you see how they did not view this man as being more valuable than a sheep. This, this idea of shame is running all over this, this person. Jesus is describing sheep in desperate need, being rescued by a shepherd. There's a word picture that goes beyond reason to connect heart to heart. Jesus answers their challenge, but he kind of does it in, indirectly. The second thing we see Jesus saying, he has a declarative, direct response. So he says in verse 12, So, it is lawful, Verse 11, we'll go back there. Which one of you as a sheep falls into the pen of the sack and not take hold of it and lift it out? Oh, how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Now, think about this. This man had a withered hand his whole entire life. Could Jesus have healed him the day before? Of course. Could Jesus have healed him the day after? Of course. Right? But something more is going on here. It's, it's not just that Jesus is, is waiting uh, to, to, uh, on the Sabbath to do this. He's doing it to take this person's shame in front of everybody and to shame those who have a, have a mindset that is contrary to God. So you look at the scripture. Just do a quick word study. How often it says that those who do not deny Christ will be put to shame. They will be dishonored. They will be separated from the family of God. They will be put to they will have shame. That this man will be drawn in. And his shame will be taken away. Jesus Christ will take his guilt and he will take his shame. Because the gospel changes from the inside out. It is holistic. So then Jesus answers this, this he defends his claim with action. He performs a miracle, verse 13. And he says to the man, stretch out man stretched it out, and it was restored. Health, healthy, like the others. Jesus restores this man to full health. But he doesn't just restore his body to full health. You see what he's doing here? He's restoring his honor. He is now honored among the people. He can now enter the sanctuary. He could probably now find a, a wife and raise children. He's no longer an outcast, no longer unclean, but he is holy, brought back in to the community. You see, all of what God is doing is saving us individually so we can be part of his body. Be a, be a, a, a younger brother and a younger sister to our other brothers of the Lord Christ. And what happens next? Verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. Now, why were they so angry? Why did they want to kill Jesus? Because they honored the temple. They were shamed. Rightly shamed. They were rightly shamed, and they got angry about it. Beloved, when you confront people who are doing things that are sinful, you attack their honor. And when you attack their honor, they will get upset. And they will get angry. 
It doesn't mean that we don't address those things. We should do it carefully, which is why when we were thinking about 1 Timothy chapter 5, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as a father, is that as a younger man, as we're dealing with our older senior senior men, we want to we want to honor them. We want to treat them with honor. Because if you take an older man, if you shame an older man, those things uh, hurt. And it takes it takes an extremely godly man who has been shamed to honor a younger man to get peace and not to be shamed. Here, Jesus rightly shamed these Pharisees because they were withholding healing from the Jews. And they were really turning away from Christ. It's that verse that we didn't get a chance to fully unpack today because of time. Um, uh, Psalm 86, verse uh, 14, it says that these insolent men who try to kill me, they have not set you before me. They are already dishonored because they have not given themselves up. They have not feared your name. They have not trusted in Christ. So what do you see? What is the public verdict here? Verse 15. And Jesus aware of these withdrew from him. So he knew these men were going to want to kill him because they were dishonored. They were shamed. But the public verdict proves true. And many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them to make him known. Ordered them not to make him known. It's divine secret. This idea of challenge, challenging, and uh, response is all throughout the, the, the gospel of how Jesus was, was handling these things. You know, everyone handles uh, shame uh, differently. But we know from the scriptures that Christ has taken our shame. Look with me in a couple places in the scriptures. We'll start in uh, Colossians. Colossians. Colossians chapter 2 is a wonderful picture of, of the gospel. You see this in verse 11. It talks about verse 9 in there. It says, Jesus, for in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So the one who has all rule and authority, who has all honor, you as a believer dwell in him. It says, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by putting by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now here's what I want you to focus in on. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that the, a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. So right there you have the first part of the gospel we talked about. This, this guilt, this legal demand has been taken care of. Right? So this idea we, we see in Romans chapter 8. Who is there to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died and rose again. God justifies us. God makes us right. When God says that you are good, you're forgiven. But notice what the next verse says. It says this, he set aside, nailing to the cross. And on the cross, what did he do? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame.
think are triumphing over that truth. When Christ rose from the dead, he triumphed over all rulers and authorities by giving heaven a place of honor. And that is really what we're called to live. As Christians, we our honor is not in this world. Our honor is in Christ. In many ways, we're called to walk in as the shamed ones in this world. But one day, when, when we're when we're gone, when we got when God takes our lowly bodies and transforms it to be like His glorious body, we will be in God's presence, and God will have this great reversal. The ones who have honor now, the ones who walk in the ways of this world, they will be put to shame. One last place I want to go. First um, Peter chapter two. First Peter chapter two. stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God are chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, hear me, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Verse 7. For the honor is for you and for me. So for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The stone stumbling or rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were just in the world. You see the difference there? Right? Life really is about honor and shame. Will you, will you, will you have the honor of believing in Christ? For Christ to take your guilt and your shame on the cross. The honor is for you who believe. But those who do not believe, they will be put to shame. See, most people don't live in light of eternity. Most people just live for today. They want the honor of today. But beloved, the honor is for you who believe. Yes, we're called to suffer. Yes, we're called to deal with all these things in this world. But if you believe, one day, one day, God will look at you in the face and say, well done. My, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Come, take my yoke. And live Heavenly Father, we pray that we would live in your honor. We pray, God, that we would not be those who do not believe and be put to shame. We pray, Lord God, that you would help us see that on the cross, Christ took our sins and all its legal demands and nailed it to the cross. But in that one moment, God, he also triumphed over all the rulers and authorities, putting them to shame. So now we know, Lord, that those who Therefore, Lord God, I pray that we will not be ashamed.
the salvation of all humanity. Let it be our greatest honor to rejoice in the full gospel of Christ and to our guilt and our shame. Trust us in Jesus' name.